our Bibles, please, and turn to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. Because this is the story of the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. And uh, we're going to pick up the story in verse 9. We're going to read from verse 9 down to verse 24. John chapter 4, verse 9. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it thou, being a Jew, ask drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith thee, Give me to drink, they would have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. And saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well, and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. Whosoever shall drink of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up unto everla into everlasting life. The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Jesus saith unto her, Go and call thy husband, and come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband. For thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou hast now is not thy husband. In, this, in that saidest thou truly. The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. She saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship ye know not what. We know what we worship for salvations of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is. When true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you this night for the wonderful privilege we have as believers to come together, to join together around your word, to be able to meditate upon the God of the Word, to be able to learn of you, so that, Father, we might know you better. And by knowing you better, we might love you better. And by loving you more, we might indeed serve you better. We do pray that, Father God, tonight as we open up your Word, you give us wisdom and understanding. Pray you to help me, give me clarity of thought, and just allow me tonight to be a blessing as we look into your Word. And may you receive all the praise and all the glory. In Jesus' name. You know, one of the most difficult questions to answer for you and I as believers would have to be, what is God like? And yet it's that question that I want to try and start answering tonight and as we continue on this series. You see, at the outset, though, we run into a problem because you and I cannot really give a definition of God. Because the truth is, God cannot be defined, for the divine God means to limit him. 
And how can our finite minds define that is limit the infinite, limitless God? Somebody said we cannot mark out the boundaries of his person and power because there are no limits to his majesty. As we stretch our finite minds to touch the infinite, you'll start to understand the limitations in our understanding. That's true. When you and I start to begin to look at the character of God, we understand the limitations of our understanding. We understand how hard it is for us to really define God. So we cannot define God within set boundaries. We cannot define God within set limits. We cannot reduce God to a set of simple statements. A dictionary definition, if you like. But we're going to try our best as we can in this series to study how he is described in his word. How to describe the complexities of his majesty, if you like, in his word. There can be no doubt that God is the greatest word in any language. Somebody described it this way, the loftiest thought the mind can entertain is the thought of God. Songwriter Halidor Linnaeus, when attempting to describe God's grace, wrote in the hymn, Wonderful Grace of Jesus, these words, How shall my tongue describe it? Where shall its praise begin? And you know, the same can be written about trying to describe God. How shall my tongue describe him? Where shall his praise begin? So where do you start when it comes to trying to define God, where do, where do we begin this study of the person of God? Since this is a series that I want to explore the character of God, where do we start? Well, the Bible does give us some clues as to what God is like. God's word describes the essence and the attributes of God. Now, I know that sounds awfully theological, and yes, it is theological. And in a sense, this series is a study of theology, theology proper, the study of God. But even though those words are theological words, they are important words in our understanding of God, the essence and attributes of God. And as we continue our series of the character of God, I want to start considering tonight the essence of God. And we finish the study on the essence, we'll look at the attributes of God, or some of the attributes of God. Let's start looking at his essence tonight. To do that, therefore, we need to ask the question, what is the meaning of essence? We have a clue to the essence of God in John chapter 4, verse 24, where the Lord is talking to the woman at the well, and he says in verse 24, God is a spirit. He explains there, he starts to explain the essence of God to you and I. By the essence of God, we mean his essential being, his essential substance, that which God is. When in John 4.24 he's described as God is spirit, he's speaking of God's essence. It's his essential being, it's, it's what God is. So what is God? God is spirit. That's what God is. Somebody put it this way, by essence we refer to someone's essential being, that is the intrinsic reality, the substance that makes up a person's very self. That's his essence. And on the other hand, of course, we talk about the attributes of God. And when we talk about the attributes of God, we're talking about the characteristics of essence. Okay? So essence is what God is, and in order to describe God's essence, we talk about his attributes. These things are the very characteristics of what makes God, God. For instance, God is spirit. That's his essence. 
Therefore, he can be omnipresent. That's one of his attributes. God can be everywhere present. God's essence is describing his being, is describing who he is. God's attributes are those qualities that describe God's character, what God does. Put another way, the term essence may be defined as that which underlines all outward manifestations of God, while God's attributes are those outward manifestations of God based upon his essence. So everything, that God, everything we know of God, everything we see of God, like his omnipresence, omniscience, and, and so on, are all based upon his essence. They are the reflections of the essence of God. And the essence of God can only be seen in what we observe of God. And to illustrate it for you in a simple way, the best way that I could, the best illustration I could find is this. Water is wet, colorless, tasteless, and odorless in itself. They're the attributes of water. Colorless, odorless, tasteless. They're the attributes of water. They describe what water is like. Well, at the same time, water is a group of molecules formed by the union of two hydrogen atoms and an oxygen atom. That is the essence of water. If something does not match that description, if something is not H2O, then it's simply not water. So even if it's tasteless, odorless, what else did I say about it? Even if it's tasteless, odorless, colorless, and wet, but it's not made up of H2O, it's not water. Okay? Because water is H2O. That's its essential essence. That's the substance that water is. But the attributes of water are that water is odorless, colorless, wet, and so on. And in the same way, if we're going to describe God, then we need to study his essence, the essential substance of God. So how do we do that? How do we look at the essential substance of God? What is God's essence? What is it, what's it made up of? Well, God's essence is, or rather, the, the, the way to discover God's essence is found for us in the nature of God, or described in his nature. And here in John chapter 4 and verse 24, one aspect of his nature is mentioned to us. God is a spirit. That's one aspect of his nature. And the word nature of God refers to different aspects of his essence. So, when we talk about water, water is made up of H2O, two hydrogen molecules and one oxygen molecule, that makes water, H2O. So what elements go into making up the essence of God? One of those is the fact that he is spirit. Let's put it another way, the nature of God describes the essence of God. So when we talk about God's nature, we're talking about his spirituality, his personality, his unity, and his trinity. Tell you these four aspects of God. It's these four aspects that we're going to look at in the next four different sermons. Okay, we're going to look at his spirituality tonight, then his personality, then his unity, and his trinity. Okay, which is the essence of God. These are the molecules, if you like, that make up God. Right, his essence. The first of these aspects is here in John 4:24, where we're told that God uh, of God's spirituality. John 4.24 says God is spirit. Now I know the King James says God is a spirit. But if you look in the Greek, 
what you find is the word actually says God is spirit. You see, when we're speaking of God's spirituality, we know that God is not a spirit, and God is not the spirit. God is simply spirit. That's what he is. He's a spiritual being. That's the essential nature. That's his essence. Now, in John chapter 4, we have something revealing to us about the Jewish people. The Jewish people never understood this completely. They didn't understand this truth. And that is what the Lord is addressing to the woman of the well in John chapter 4 and verses 15 to 24. As he addressed the Samaritan woman, he's trying to address this lack of understanding of the essential character of God, that God is spirit. And that's the discussion that's going on. Go back with me to verse 15. This is the woman saith to him, Sir, give me this water, that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Jesus saith to her, Go and call thy husband, and come hither. The woman answered, said, I have no husband. Jesus said, said unto her, Thou hast said, Well, I have no husband. For thou hast had five husbands, and the one whom thou hast now is not thy husband. And in, the, in this thou hast said truly, the woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. And then she makes this statement, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that at Jerusalem is the place to worship where men ought to worship. She says, Our fathers are Samaritans. Our fathers said we're to worship at Mount uh, Gerizim, where your people, the Jews, said you're supposed to worship God in Jerusalem. Jesus answered in verse 21, said unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh, when ye shall neither in this mountain nor at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know that uh, what we worship for salvation of the Jews, but the hour cometh and now is when true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is spirit. You see, the Jews held, had a long-held belief that God could only be worshipped in Jerusalem. That if you wanted to worship God, you had to make the pilgrimage up to Jerusalem. You had to go up to the temple and you had to worship God in the temple because that's where God was. That's where you could worship God. If you wanted to find God, you could find him in the temple in Jerusalem. The Samaritans, of course, because they were outcasts, because they were uh, neither Jews nor Gentiles, they were a mixed race of people, they set up their own place where they said God could be met. And the only place God could be met was in Mount Gerizim. And so the Jews in particular had long believed that the only place to worship God was in the temple. It's interesting, way back in 1 Kings chapter 8, and verse 27, when they're talking about the building of the temple, this is what's recorded for us. It says, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. How much less is this house that I have builded? After Solomon's built the temple, Solomon says, how can God be contained in this building? He understood the concept that God was not able to be restricted to one place because God is spirit. And you can read the Old Testament. I could have given you a list of verses, and I started out with a list, and I thought, well, you don't really need a list to say the same thing over and over again. The reality is God's word repeats it over and over again, that God is a spirit. He cannot be contained in a building. He can't be held in just one place. He can't be found just in the temple. 
in Jerusalem. But despite that, despite the fact that the Old Testament repeatedly declares that, and it's found in God's Word, it's actually also found in the book of Acts. For centuries, the Jews believed the temple had been the only place where God would worship. In fact, it became the focal point of Jewish worship as the only place where God could dwell. But here in John chapter 4, verses 19 and 24, the Lord makes it clear that God cannot be contained in the temple. Why? Because God is spirit. The reason why you, can't, that, that you won't worship in Jerusalem or in the, this mountain, which is the Mount Gerizim, the reason why God can't be worshipped in Mount Gerizim or just be worshipped in Jerusalem is because, as he says in verse 24, God is spirit. Look again in verse 23. It says, But the hour cometh, and now is, when true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him, God is spirit. God cannot be confined to any one place because God is spirit. Now, when we talk about God being spirit, what do we mean? We mean that he is immaterial or he's invisible. Go with me to Colossians chapter 1, please, and verse 15. Colossians 1.15. Talking about the Lord Jesus Christ and his character, it says in verse 15, it says, Who is the image of the invisible God? Firstborn of every creature. The invisible God. God is immaterial. God is invisible. The word immaterial means spiritual rather than physical. The word invisible means unable to be seen. And if you go back with me to John chapter 1, chapter 1 and verse 18, it's what we read about God in this matter of being invisible, which means he cannot be seen. In John chapter 1 and verse 18, it says this, No man hath seen God at any time, the only begotten Son which has, is in the bosom of the Father hath declared him, no man hath seen God at any time. Now if you're a student of the Word of God, you're probably thinking right now of a couple of passages in the Old Testament where people did see God. You're thinking of things like Genesis 32 and verse 30 and Exodus 24, 10. And you're all sitting there nodding and saying, yeah, I know all about that. Well, let's go there and look at them, shall we? Genesis 32 and verse 30, because even if you don't know the exact passage, you probably know the stories. Genesis 32 and verse 30. Talking about Jacob, in verse 29, says, Jacob asked him and said, Tell me, I pray thee, thy name. And he said, Wherefore is it that thou dost ask after my name? And he blessed him there. And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel. For I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. So Jacob saw God. Exodus 24, please, and verse 10. Exodus 24 and verse 10. This is Moses. Moses called up to the mount, and uh, God's going to give to him the Ten Commandments as he comes up to the mount. And in verse 10, we read this. And they saw the God of Israel, and there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone, as it were, the body of heaven in his clearness. 
Uh, verse, I should read verse 9. It says, Then went up Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. So how could it be that no man has seen God at any time, and yet both Jacob and Moses and the 70 and uh, Aaron and Nadab and Abihu saw God? How can that be so? Plenty of other verses in the Old Testament too. Isn't this a contradiction? Well, let me try and explain it this way with a simple question to each of us. If we were to get a mirror right now, and we were to look into a mirror, would you see your face? Well, you'd say yes, but the answer really is no. Because what you see is a reflection of your face. You don't actually see your face. The only people who can see your face are people who are looking at you. What you see is a reflection of your face in the mirror. In fact, we have never really seen our faces, our own face, because we can't actually take them off and have a look at them. Okay, our face. All we see is a reflection of our face. I know this is a simple you know, illustration, but I'm simple-minded when it comes to things like this. I like to look at illustrations that make sense to me. So those who saw God did not see his fullness. They didn't see God in all of his glory. What they saw, if you like, is a reflection of his essence. When they saw God, they saw a reflection of his essence. Remember Moses? When he was on the mountain, he said to the Lord, he said, show me thy glory. And God says, well, this is what God said to him in Exodus 33, verse 20. He said to him, thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. And so what God did was he hid Moses in the cleft of the rock. Remember the story? And as he went by, the Lord removed his hand and he got to see the hind parts of God as he went by. He got to see a reflection, an image of his glory, but didn't get to see him in all of his glory. He did not see his essence. So those who saw God saw a reflection of his essence. No man can see God for he is spirit. You can't see a spirit. But also God is spirit. Also because God is spirit, it means not only he is invisible, but it also means he doesn't have a body. Look in Luke 24, please, and 39. Luke 24. 24 and verse 39. This is after the Lord has risen from the dead. This is the Lord meeting with his disciples, and he's met with them down there by the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And in verse 39 of this chapter, it says this, Behold my hands and my feet, that is, I myself handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones, as you see me. The Lord Jesus, they thought he was a spirit. He said, well, no, touch me and handle me, and uh, because spirits don't have flesh and bones like I have. Of course, there are many verses in the scripture that represent God as having human body parts. It talks about the hands of God. It talks about the feet of God. It talks about the eyes of God. It talks about the ears of God, and so on. But that in no way implies that God has a body. In each of these cases, God is using familiar imagery, language that you and I understand. We know what a hand does. We know what eyes do. We know what ears do. We know what feet do. God's using imagery that you and I understand to describe essential aspects of his character to us. So that you and I might understand something about God. We might understand the work of God. When God talks about protecting us, 
you know, and, and with, a, with his hand and so on. We understand that imagery. One commentator said this, he does not have a literal hand, but he does move the shield and protect us. He does not have literal eyes as we know them, but he does see and know all. Right. God is spirit, therefore he is immaterial. God is spirit, therefore he doesn't have a physical body. Because God is spirit, it also means that he can be in all places at all times. Which of course is omnipresence. Look in Psalm 139. Psalm 139. Psalm 139 and verse 7. It says, Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. I say, surely the darkness shall cover me. Even the night shall be light about me. There's nowhere, no place that you and I can escape from the presence of God. He's omnipresent. When we get to his attributes, we'll actually look at his omnipresence. But his omnipresence demonstrates to us that God is spirit. That God doesn't have a physical body. If God had a body, he could only be in one place at any one time. But God is immaterial. God is Spirit, God doesn't have a body. God is able to be in all places at all time. God is omnipresent because of his essential nature, which is God is spirit. But why does it matter if God is spirit or not? What difference does it make? Well, I could have given you umpteen reasons why it matters. But what I thought I'd do tonight is to look at the significance of God's essence, the Spirit, in John chapter 4 and verse 24, because the Lord actually tells us why it's important that He's Spirit. John 4, 24, He says, God is Spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. The significance to you and I as believers of God being Spirit is this, that if we're going to worship Him, then you and I must worship him in spirit and truth. The Lord tells us back in verse 23, he says this, The hour cometh now is when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. The Father seeketh such to worship him. We have to worship him in spirit and in truth. So you and I need to realize that we cannot know God by our senses. We can't feel him. We can't smell him. We can't see him. We can't hear him audibly. We don't hear voices of God like the Old Testament saints did. We don't hear a booming voice from heaven declaring unto us. I know most of us think sometimes it would be nice, wouldn't it, when we're sitting down at our kitchen table pondering what the Lord wants us to do. It would be nice for him to just appear there for us and explain it to us in black and white rather than leaving us to spend all the time praying and reading his word and by faith believing something to be so. But we don't hear him audibly. The reality is we can't know God by our senses. God is spirit. And we must worship him in spirit and truth because he is spirit. In the 1960s, the Russian cosmonaut uh, Gurman Titov 
uh, said the following after trip into space. He said, some say God is living there. I was looking around very attentively, but I did not see anyone there. I did not detect any either angels or gods. I don't believe in God. I believe in man. His strength, his possibilities, his reason. Because he didn't see God when he went into space. Did I was comment tomorrow the quote by French astronomer Pierre Simon Laplace? He said this: "I have swept the heavens with my telescope, but I could not find anywhere a God." Well, you see, both men forgot one thing, one of the simplest doctrines in the Word of God, and that is this: that God is spirit. You and I can't sense Him as. We sense each other. We can't sense him as we sense things around us. God is spirit. They forgot that. They misunderstood that. They went looking for God. Well, they were never going to find him with a telescope. They were never going to find him in a spaceship. And it doesn't matter how many Hubble telescopes and what the new one's called, the NASA's one up there, no matter how much they find, they'll never ever find God by looking through telescopes. He's not some grand, I love this quote from somebody, he's not some grand old man on a throne in outer space and he cannot be detected by physical means. And you know, even if Tibov and Laplace simply wanted to make a broader point about there being no physical evidence for God, they forgot that God has not chosen to make his specific attributes known through nature. You can only know him by faith. You and I can know there is a God by nature. Romans 1 tells us that. You and I can know God exists by, if we open our eyes, we look around us, all of mankind can know that God exists. Everywhere you look, you see the evidence for a God. There is order, complexity in all of creation, and that speaks of the fact of the reality that there is a God. But the truth is that you can know that God exists, but you can't know him except by faith. We can read his word and we can know that God exists, but you can't know him personally except by faith. So because God is spirit, and because we can only know him by faith, then we must worship him in spirit and in truth, as it says here in John 4, 24. Now worship, somebody says, is the occupation of our hearts with a God who is known to us. The occupation of our hearts with a God who is known to us. We must first know him, and then we can dwell on him and worship him. You see, true worship can only take place after we've trusted Christ. Isn't that what's going on here in John chapter 4? This Samaritan woman at the well, that the Lord's gone out of his way to Samaria to spend some time with her. He sent his disciples away to go and buy bread. And he spent time talking to this woman at the well. And what's he explained to her? He's explained to her that the only means of salvation is Jesus Christ. He is the means of salvation. He asked for water to drink from the well. And she says, how can you, you know, and he said, if you knew who I was, you would have asked me for water. And she said, well, how can you get water? You don't have anything to draw water with. And he, and he then responds to her and says that the water that he will give her is a water that done to everlasting life. He explains to her that he is offering to her salvation. 
And we know she gets saved because she goes back to the, her city and she says to people, come and see the man who's told me all things I've ever done and this is the Christ. She knows who he is. Christ just spent some time explaining to her how in the world she can get saved and then he says, once you're saved, you then can come and worship God in spirit and truth. You don't have to worry about worshiping this mountain or in Jerusalem. You just need to come to the Father and worship in spirit and truth. And the pre precursor of that is you have to trust Christ. And after we have a relationship with Christ, once we've been saved, then we have a relationship with God. And worship will grow and deepen as our fellowship with him grows. Somebody said the true worship is the occupation of the heart, the core of our thoughts and feelings. That's what Christ meant in John 4, 24. He said that we must worship God in spirit and truth. We must worship by meditating on him and rejoicing in him. One of the reasons why I wanted to embark upon this series about the character of God is because if you and I are going to worship him in spirit and truth, then we need to know him. And the only way we get to know him is if we study him in his word. Now, I, I, you know, usually that's the domain of Bible colleges. You come along to Bible college and we will teach you three years of theology. You'll go through all the theologies. You'll go through theology proper. And uh, uh, theology, the doctrine of sin, and so and uh, anthropology, the doctrine of man, will go through uh, uh, soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, and pneumatology, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, and Christology, the doctrine of Christ, and ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, and eschatology, the doctrine of second thing, uh, the second coming. Have I missed any? Anyway, they're all there. All the theologies, and we'll take you through them. It's no more the domain of Bible college. But you know, the Bible is not designed just to be taught at Bible college. And the character of God, the person of God, is not just uniquely a Bible college subject. Because if you and I are going to worship God in spirit and truth, then we've got to know the God we worship. And so one of the reasons why I wanted to do this series was I wanted to help us to get a glimpse Albeit a very basic, probably poor attempt at getting a glimpse of the character of God. But if we're going to worship in spirit and truth, we've got to know him. Since God is invisible, the only, uh, it's only natural for man to want to make idols. That's the problem that's happened throughout history. Man has wanted to make an idol to represent God because they can't see him. The problem with that, that violates God. Because you know what people tend to do is they tend to worship the idol rather than the God that he's supposed to represent. And that's why in this passage the Lord says that we need to have proper worship, true worship. And the only way we have true worship is if we know that God is spirit. If we understand the character of God, if we understand the essence of God, if we understand the essential being of God, who God is, if we know who he is, then we can worship him in spirit and truth. To worship God in spirit means not to worship him with pomp, but with purity. To worship God in spirit is to worship from the inward part, not the outward. Remember we said worship is the occupation of the heart. 
with a known God. Look in Philippians, if you would please. Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Verse 1 says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me indeed, is not grievous. But for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of concision. For we are, we are the circumcision which worship God in spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. We're to worship God in spirit and have no confidence in the flesh. To worship God in truth, that's to worship God in spirit, that's from the heart. To worship God in truth requires that we worship God in the light of his word. That as we read the word of God, that we find out the God of the word. Remember we talked about in the first two messages in this series, we talked about the character of God, getting to know God. Getting to know the God of the word. Remember, not reading the stories of God's word, but reading the God of the story. Getting to know him. Because the only way you and I can worship God in spirit and truth is that you and I know the truth about him. That we get to know him through his word. To worship God in truth requires that we have an intimate knowledge of the God that we worship. You know, if we really could have a glimpse, if you and I could take a trip right now into the very presence of God, and you and I could stand like Isaiah and stand like John in the presence of God, in the very throne room of God, it would change our perspective of life. And how we lived for God. Remember Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 in the year that King Uzziah died. He found himself in the heaven, uh, lifted up into heaven. He saw the Lord high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. And we find that Isaiah begins to shake and he says, Woe is me for I am undone. Why? Because I've seen God. He saw God in his glory and he saw, saw in this vision the image of God and it caused him to shake. And when the Lord then spoke and said, Whom will I send and whom will go for us? Isaiah had no choice but to say, Here am I, Lord, send me. It had an impact upon him. And if you and I would get to know the God of the Word, if you and I would get to know Him intimately, if you and I would get to realize that God is Spirit, His very essential being is that God is a spiritual being. And we must worship Him in spirit and truth. Then you and I will be able to be what God wants us to be. Somebody said we must know God before we can worship Him. For how can we worship that which we don't know? You and I must have an established relationship with God. First of all, by trusting Jesus Christ as our Savior. And then by a deepening understanding of our God, by fellowship with Him in His Word daily. And through meditation on Him daily. Because those who don't know the truth of who He is are fair game for false teachers. Somebody said, truth is rooted in the person and character of God. We only know truth to the extent that we know God. Christ came to earth in part so that we could know God and be sanctified, made holy by his truth. 
For us to worship in truth, therefore, God must work in our hearts. Somebody else said, God wants our hearts and our duties. Worshipping God in spirit and truth is not an option, it's a necessity. If you and I are going to be effective for God, if you and I are going to be all that God wants to be, then you and I need to have uh, to worship God in spirit and truth. And the only way we can do that is if we get to know the God of the Word. Have an intimate relationship with Him through fellowship and meditation on the Word of God. And then you and I can be effective for Him. Somebody said our ability to know God and worship God is the least, at least in part, the significance to us of God's essence as spirit. It's vital that you and I understand God's character, for God's character dictates every single Christian teaching. Everything you and I believe is underpinned by the character of God. Every one of our doctrinal beliefs is underpinned by the very character of God. What we believe is really a reflection of who God is. Because that's what theology is. It's, it's the doctrine of God. It just reflects everything that we believe is based upon that. And our view of God will dictate every other belief and action. Therefore, it's vital that we get to know our God. We need to have a proper view of who this God is that you and I worship. Who's this God that we serve? Who is it that is our God? We must build our knowledge of him on his word. So that's one of the reasons why this series on the character of God. Because unless we know him, we can't worship him in spirit and truth. And if we can't worship him in spirit and truth, we will never be holy as he is holy. We'll never be effective for him. My desire is that we might know him. And because we know him, we might worship him in spirit and in truth. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you tonight for your word. We thank you for who you are. We thank you your word clearly teaches us that you are spirit. And that because you are spirit, you are immaterial. Father God, you're not material, you're spiritual. A spiritual being and therefore as human beings and we're going to worship you, we need to worship you in spirit and in truth. And the only way we can do that is not by natural senses but by faith and the only way that we can grow our faith is to spend time in your word begin to know you Lord help us to get to know you so that we might indeed worship you and that by worshipping you in spirit and in truth we might be changed from glory to glory into your image that we might be effective in ministering for you Pray that you commend your word to our hearts this night and bless this night, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.